I hit that point of making a decision about moving into that abundance mindset and letting go of a lot of that fear. And the benefit of that is so real because it opens you up to being more humble. And when you're more humble, you are more curious and it opens you up to more growth. It's hard to grow when you're pushing that hard with a chip on your shoulder. Behind the scenes, it was a small group of people that were doing everything. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. I want to know how this insane growth actually happened. What are you doing when no one's around, no one's looking? Are you just showing up and doing the minimum? Or are you approaching it like a pro? Be a student of the game. Hello and welcome back to the GTM podcast. Thank you, as always, for lending us your eardrums for the next 40 minutes. Uh, we always strive to make these super actionable and tactical and speak through stories as much as we can. And we're so incredibly lucky to have this next uh, guest. I've been excited for this episode for a while. I am joined by Stevie Case, who is the CRO of Vanta. Stevie, welcome to the pod. How are you feeling today? Oh my gosh, I'm excited to be here. Feeling good, coming to you from Dublin. I've been on the ground in Europe all week and I'm feeling really energized. I'm loving it. We've got some Dublin Friday evening energy for you, um, which is always good vibes. Uh, and I always love to give just a super quick bio uh, for the listeners. So Stevie currently oversees Vanta's go-to-market team uh, to support the company's rapid, like we could call it historical growth right now, and brings over 20 years of sales and BD experience to the role uh, most recently serving as VP of mid-market sales at Twilio, uh, running a just a small $425 million line of business for the marketing uh, leading cloud communications platform. Um, and you joined as one of their first AEs and then kind of worked your way up from there, uh, which is so cool. I guess I got to ask, like, you seem to have timed that Twilio run pretty perfectly. And it looks like you're timing this Vanta uh, run perfectly as well. Timing is tough. What do you attribute um, just the timing of joining such great teams? A lot of luck. Definitely a lot of luck plays into that. And, you know, beyond that, I think it's really curiosity, having the curiosity to ask the right questions about the business and you know, I'm really grateful. I, one of the lessons I took from early in my career is the importance of being a part of a great company. And that goes beyond just the opportunity for you at the company. It's really about how big is the mission? How ambitious is the vision? And can you move the needle within that? And I've been really lucky to be in that position. Uh, certainly that run at Twilio was was pretty epic. I got to be there from a week before the IPO when the run rate was $200 million for the entire business. And then when I left, the uh, run rate was about $3.5 billion. And that was over the course of six years. And it was just an absolute blast and came over to Vanta and I'm getting to do the same run, you know, doubling revenue year over year and, and doing some really exciting stuff. So sometimes you just got to find the right place that uh, got that magic and then has the right vibe and Hopefully you get lucky and get a seat and don't worry too much about what that seat is and you just roll with it. I love that. I love that. 
it seems a common thread. All the smartest people I know uh, say it's luck, and I'm I'm not sure I'm believing them so much anymore. But uh, it's very very humble of you to to say that. And I just wanted to also mention that you support a lot of startups throughout your career as well. You've been an angel investor and advisor, so. You know, as Vanta grows to become more than a startup, you still have your, you know, hands in in some other startups as well. And I wanted to get your perspective on something before we sort of dive into it. And it's something that's really top of mind for me right now, partly because we did a roadshow. We got a bunch of our LPs and founders together last week. We were in SF, LA, Denver, and of course, AI and the advancements in artificial intelligence was on everyone's mind. It's what everyone wanted to talk about. Um, but it was very like pie in the sky, sort of where are we going? What's going to happen in five years? What's happening in 10 years? And the thing I'm super interested in right now is how are revenue leaders or their teams actually using it like today? Um, so I would love to know, like, have you worked it into your workflow? In what capacity have you done so? So I'm really bullish on AI and the potential, particularly within revenue organizations. And, you know, you mentioned five years, 10 years. To me, five years from now does not even exist. Like one year from now barely exists. Like it's such a a long time frame. And I think it's incumbent on revenue leaders and company leaders in general to adapt to the current market and what's available. And, you know, AI has not just tremendous potential, but it has real tremendous real world application today. So we are at the beginning of that journey, but my intention is to make a very significant bet on AI within my organization, not just Vanta as a company. It's something we're investing in as a company as well. But I think this is a moment to really reconsider what does it mean to be a revenue leader? I think the the old school idea here is it's bodies and capacity and a direct sale. And it's not that that's going to go away, but I do think this is the moment of RevOps, really. This is like that moment where we think about the tech stack we've got. How do we make that look like something extremely modern, like the engineering and product development side of the house. So we're early in the journey, but I am actually uh, looking at hiring resources and building a team dedicated to AI within revenue operations. Because I think that the impact that we could have in the next three months, six months, is probably greater than the impact of hiring X number of sales reps or CSMs or anything else. So to me, it is the emerging big bet that I want to make in my revenue organization. And we're thinking about it from every angle. It's customer experience. How do we create AI-powered bots that surface information that today we surface through human engagement in a way that's really customer-friendly? Thinking about it in terms of sales efficiency. How do we really provide the most actionable insights with the great wealth of data we have to our sales force to make sure they're focused on the right opportunities and that they're handling those with the most efficient next steps. Um, How do we optimize that post-sales experience for our customers so they are getting the true, best, most personalized and relevant experience on the back end? I think in the past, we thought of those things as engineering and products job. 
And I'm a firm believer that that that's all in my world today. And while it's a partnership with engineering, we've got to have our own resources to build these great customer experiences. And AI is going to be at the heart of those experiences within weeks, not years. Yeah. I mean, I, I resonate with everything that you're saying there. And it's kind of how I'm looking at it. I think the first wave of AI adoption with, that we're seeing is a lot of people trying to fit these new advancements in technology in like the old paradigm, right? Of like, we, we still hire more reps, we'll make them more efficient. But I think it's actually more going to look like a complete reimagining where maybe PLG, direct sales, they all start to blend. And it's so, I, I think the other thing you said where having this AI RevOps team, I think every company in three months is going to have that. What what are you calling that role? That team is like, do you have a JD out right now? Because I think this is going to be a thing. I, I, I don't have the JD out yet. Uh, look for that next week. By the time this episode comes out, probably I'll have the JD out. It's a great question. We were just discussing exactly what is this role and what do we call it? Um, you know, I've got an incredible uh, business systems team, a killer ops team, and I'm leaning on those leaders to help me define this vision. And in the short term, I think that looks like a, a, a small strike team of folks who are really going to come in and try to align what we could do quickly with AI and in a really interesting way to completely transform the customer experience from the go-to-market side of the house. Uh, I think we're so leveraged. We're having so many great conversations. And rather than, to your point, trying to take AI and just optimize the way we work today, my hope is to really transform it completely. And I'm a huge, a huge fan of PLG, obviously coming from Twilio. When I joined, there was barely a sales team at $200 million in revenue. It was pretty much 100% PLG. And we built an incredible direct sales team on top of that. But I think even with the advent of PLG, a lot of people were thinking like, okay, how do we make a traditional direct sales model work? And they wanted to gate PLG and limit it because they felt it was a threat to direct sales. And part of why I was top rep there and then grew my career so fast there is because I saw the synergy of those two things together. And to me, a PLG motion underlying direct sales made it all so much more powerful and it was incredibly leveraged. And I think AI has got to be thought of the same way. It's about how do we transform the way we work and let go of the old ideas of what selling is and turn it into something that's really centered around a great customer experience. Yeah. And that's what we've kind of been trying to get to over time. I also think it's very interesting that RevOps last year, I believe it was the fastest growing job title in, in tech. And just so happens that now we're going to really need those people more than more than ever. Um, and so let's go a little bit deeper on what made you so successful at, at Twilio. So you succeeded in technical sales as someone who I believe is not overly technical. Um, and both Twilio and Vanta, you could say, are solving these unsexy problems, if you will. Um, what made you succeed in in that environment? Because it can be it can be a difficult sale. Yeah, it's it's something I'm really passionate about, and I consider this my sweet spot in sales. And at Twilio, it was often selling to developers, very technical folks, 
at Vanta, we are selling to security professionals and CISOs and folks who own compliance day to day. These are highly specialized, highly technical folks who know their business. And if we're being completely honest, usually don't like sales, don't like talking to salespeople, don't want to be getting on the phone to deal with that and often consider that a waste of time. I love a good challenge. And to me, like that, that challenge is such a human one. And there are a few key things you can do to succeed as a non-technical person doing technical sales. And one is just be really curious. Just because you're not technical, you can still learn the product deeply. And my advice to sellers is always that while you may not be as big a domain expert as the person you're selling to, you know your product better than they do. And you can spend more time every day getting even deeper on your product and how it can transform their business. And that's valuable. So that number two is always be orienting around how you can provide value to that person in a way that matters to them. So can you give them education? Can you give them access to something they didn't have access to before that helps them in some way? So you've got to develop a deep sense of empathy for what are the jobs they're trying to do? What are the blockers that they're facing? And how can you help them? You don't have to be technical to understand those things. You just have to be curious. And to me, a great seller is somebody who does incredible discovery that is backed by genuine curiosity. And really, that's at the heart of being a great non-technical seller to a technical audience. So in these businesses, what you'll often see is that the seller profile that does quite well doesn't look very traditional. They are more somebody who is a bit of an athlete and has that raw horsepower and the intelligence and the curiosity and can just understand the business problems at hand. And sometimes they're selling and sometimes they're educating and sometimes they're enabling and they can be uh, you know, really fluid in switching back and forth between those functions as their customers need it. So you really got to think differently. And sometimes having a very traditional background can be a hindrance there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you found a way to test for curiosity during the hiring process? Yeah. Yes. So I love to do this in a couple of different ways. I think one of the things you want to look for that underlies curiosity is, is grit and drive. And one way I've seen this successfully deployed in an interview process is to dig into things that were hard-won accomplishments over time. And what you're looking for is a candidate who has had to struggle to accomplish something over a long period. So they continued to invest, even in the face of headwinds or challenges. And if they can tell you a great story about that that's got passion and heart, you know they had to be very adaptable, they had to learn along that process, and they had the grit to get it done. So that's one. And then the second is I really love to model uh, discovery in the interview process. And so what I'm looking for is, uh, you know, them to ask me really insightful, thoughtful questions about my business. So I try to leave space in that interview cycle, either to just tell them about the business and then ask them what questions they have and see how deep they go. Um, and one of the more successful ways I've seen this done is to give them a scenario and have them run a mock discovery call. And I think it's way more effective than having them do like a mock presentation or a pitch, because then you really get to the heart of 
how curious are they? Are they just asking the rote basic discovery questions? Or are they actually trying to understand? And those folks who really seek to understand at a deeper level, those are the ones you want. Yeah, totally. There's such a difference between going through a list of questions and asking questions that build on top of the answers and peel back that that onion. And it's pretty pretty easy to to identify. And so I love that in the interview process. I feel like that used to be more common. I remember my first BDR role in tech ever, I had like three role plays. And I, I don't see that quite quite as much, which I think you can tell a lot more on a, a quick couple role plays than you can in you know answers, especially sellers. They get good at telling their story or they should be pretty good. Um, but speaking of stories, so I, I want to transition a little bit to the story part of this podcast and give you sort of an open floor to just tell us about one of the more impactful stories that you've gone through in your career. And we always like it when it's one that maybe you haven't widely shared yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I have had a really, uh, it definitely hasn't been an easy path per se or a traditional path. And it was never apparent to me what my next role was throughout my career. You know, I've really, through that curiosity in each role, I've sort of discovered what's next, or I've discovered that next layer of opportunity and then pursued it. And, you know, I, I don't think I even could have told you what a CRO was 10 years ago, even maybe seven, eight years ago, let alone had any idea what that job was or how to do it. And, you know, a couple of couple of roles ago, I, I was a VP sales at a startup. And I was helping that I was the first non technical hire, it was just me and engineering, basically, and the founders. And I was helping this uh, startup, Series A startup, establish a go-to-market function. So I was building sales, was building support, brought in a couple of SDRs. We were really just at that early phase. I had to define the pricing, um, all the basics. And it was an exciting role. I had been a VP sales before, but this was um, a little bit of a broader scope than I had ever taken on. And as we built it, you know, we started approaching a million dollars in ARR. So we took it from pre-revenue to a million in ARR. And man, it was hard. I felt like I was playing a co-founder-like role at this company, just like hustling so hard to try to build the business. And I was set up with one of the advisors. He was a member of, well, he became a member of the board um, and was an advisor to the company. And I was paired up with him as uh, like a mentor. And I was so, I remember being so eager and so eager to get his coaching because I was trying to figure out how do I move from player coach to like fully dedicated leader without sacrificing revenue growth. We were at that first inflection point where I shouldn't be the one doing most of the deal work. And, you know, I sat down with this guy. He was a CEO running his own company at the time. And it was very clear very quickly that this man did not think I was up to the task. And I was asking him, like, how do I make this transition? How do I navigate these next three months? And like, how would you guide me? And I was trying to ask thoughtful discovery questions. I was, I was intimidated. This was like a very serious guy. And, you know, it was it was awkward and I couldn't figure out why. And, and, and then he said, you know, I have a VP sales at my company. And uh, 
you know, very experienced guy. And, you know, he's got five kids. And you know what? He never sees his kids. He's on the road Monday to Friday. He's hustling. And you know what? He loves it. He absolutely loves it. And I'm just absorbed. I'm like trying to understand what this guy is saying to me. And, and then he makes eye contact and he says, you know, it just takes a certain kind of person. And then I knew what he was trying to say to me. And uh, I was not that certain kind of person in his eyes. And it took a, it took a minute to process that. And it was very nice. And I kind of like, okay, I closed my laptop and, you know, we wrapped it up and I left and uh, it was rough. And that was not the only time in my career I had that kind of interaction. And certainly at the heart of that, there was all kinds of weird gendered stuff. And this man didn't know anything about me. He didn't come prepared to talk. It was all just to send that message. And I, I had other interactions in the same time frame. Some, you know, my my own founder saying he didn't think I could take on enterprise sales. And, you know, that experience, it put a chip on my, I've always had a chip on my shoulder to a certain extent. I've always felt like the underdog, but that experience, man, it was like wounding in the moment. And then it just turned into this fuel and this hunger to prove that wrong. And out of that experience, you know, they told me they didn't think I could do enterprise sales. I couldn't lead the enterprise sales effort. So I went to Twilio next. And what did they offer me at Twilio? They offered me two jobs, a, a management role and an enterprise seller role, a quoted enterprise seller role. And I said, give me the enterprise seller role. And I ended up doing dozens of Fortune 500 deals, helping establish the enterprise business for this incredibly successful hypergrowth company. So like those moments, I know they happen to many of us in the industry. And the key is just taking that and turning it into fuel. And it's a data point. It's not real. It's not even about me. But I turned that into fuel to go do bigger things. Fantastic story. And I hope whichever gentleman that was listens to this podcast and oh, he, we'll just he, mic drop mic drop right there um, he knows who he is he knows <laughs> i love it um uh, so it's it's so interesting <clears throat> a lot of folks you know we have on this podcast resonate with the idea of having a chip on their shoulder i certainly do um and this is more of like a personal question but something i'm i'm going through right now i think and many people is transitioning that chip on your shoulder, which is great fuel, but it's almost like fear-based fuel, if that makes sense. All right. You're like, I want to prove people wrong. I want to like, I want to go. And I don't know how sustainable that is. I think there is a, a, a point in your career where you have to transition that fuel to something more healthy, you know, passion, love for what you're doing, your team, you know, and that's, I think really where he missed his example of this guy who frankly sounds sick if he's not seeing his family and he's like, you know, just like, he's just, he's hooked on that fuel and he's not repeatable. He's not scalable. And, you know, it's hard to teach that. How have, have you transitioned off of that kind of fuel and how's that journey? Been? Yeah, look, I am very much still in that journey, but I have made a big transition over these last several years. And 
part of that was really, and you're right, it's very fear-based. It was the transition from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset Mm -hmm. and a little bit of a feeling of safety. And honestly, for me, that, that transition didn't really start to happen in earnest until about midway through my journey at Twilio. And part of it was that I did prove them wrong. And I did take this very discreet thing I was told I couldn't do. And I went and did it. And I did it over and over and over. And I, I, I proved it. And then I realized I was still driving in that same way out of fear. And I was just looking for the next data point to prove wrong. And it's not sustainable. And the reality for me, too, is I'm a single mom. So I am never going to be, by choice, the person who's not home seeing their kid. Because that my daughter is my life. <laughs> That's everything to me. And um, so I hit that point of making a decision about moving into that abundance mindset and letting go of a lot of that fear. And the benefit of that is so real because it opens you up to being more humble. And when you're more humble, you are more curious and it opens you up to more growth. It's hard to grow when you're pushing that hard with a chip on your shoulder. So taking that step back, I was grateful to find an incredible mentor at Twilio, a lot of mentors, but one in particular was George Hu, who was our COO. George came from Salesforce where he was the COO. And he made me deeply uncomfortable with his like very direct feedback. And he also just really challenged me to get better. And he, he taught me what good looked like at the next level up and even all the way up to the C-suite. Without George, I would not have ever known how to do the CRO job. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I could have been open to learning that without making that transition away from the fear-based growth to a much more expansive sort of abundance mindset of like, okay, the world is my oyster. Like everything is okay. I'm safe. I'm good. It's all It's all good. And I'm going to make mistakes and it's okay. And now I can just embrace whatever comes next. Yeah. It's, it makes me happy that we have this new era of leaders and you leading the way. It's, it's, it's very cool to see. I feel like these chips can drive us, but then we hit this plateau and you need to find those people and find that expansiveness to keep, keep growing. And then everyone around you gets to, you know, grow with you. Um, okay. So there's, a lot of things in that story you did right. You know, you kept fighting. You kind of questioned everything. Um, you took a unique approach to a lot of these roles. You looked for different patterns. Didn't also accept the conventional wisdom that was thrown at you. You like had this great radar of like, okay, well, that's advice, and I don't have to follow that one. Um, but we'll we'll seek out these other people that are more in line. Uh, when you look back at the story. Where did you go wrong? What would you do differently? Oh my gosh. So many places. Really, uh, Part of that journey has been the recognition that I went wrong in a lot of places and that that's okay. And I had another mentor very early in my career, uh, Matt Golden, who was my first sales leader And he's a VC now, incredible guy, taught me how to sell. And one of the early lessons he taught me was that when you're selling to someone, one of the most effective things you can do on a human level to get them to open up is to be vulnerable yourself and not have to project this um, outward appearance of perfection, 
just own that you are quirky and weird and like not perfect. And it gives the other person permission to be the same. And so I've embraced that along my career. And, you know, I, I think early in my career, there was a misunderstanding that I had. And this was one of the fundamental early mistakes I made. And that misunderstanding was that networking and connections were going to be the magic that like gets the next door open for you. And you just got to meet the right people and they'll put you in the right place. And that that's the value of network. And that felt very cynical to me. So I didn't invest in it. And I think I fundamentally misunderstood the value of network at that point. And what I now see in my current C to CRO is that the value of network is not about access to opportunity per se. It's much more about learning from other people because no one knows how to do the whole job in any of these jobs. A lot of us are at these roles for the first time in our career. And everybody's, if you're going to make it to that level, you're always going to have first time at that role. And the most efficient and effective way to grow in a new meaty role is to reach out to that network and learn from other people and then be a resource to them as well. So a lot of my job today is networking with folks and just asking them, like, are you seeing this problem? How did you address it? Let me run by you how I'm thinking about my business and tell me what I'm doing wrong. Like, tell me what I'm missing. That element of network has turned out to be probably the most valuable thing that you can possess. And there's so much pattern matching. There's so much you can miss. And there are market factors and dynamics and like so many things changing that the value of having those relationships goes much farther than I ever estimated. I wish I had invested in those relationships earlier. Mm -hmm. It's something, you know, we've almost built GTM fund on is the idea that network is really about access or accelerating speed of contextual knowledge acquisition, right? Is these like very specific, call them ungoogleable answers that, you know, no one knows how to, what this new AI role in the JD might look like, right? There's always these new things happening. But if you can surround yourself with other people that are thinking about similar problems, you can start to get closer to, to an answer. Um, and I think that is fantastic advice for everyone. I feel like you're right. Networking almost has this very selfish component to it. Like I'm going to go and, you know, make these people and then they're going to give me opportunities. But no, it's, a, it's about access to knowledge and giving as much as you're getting um, and, you can just learn so much quicker. Your growth happens faster. Um, that's, it's that's really great. the ultimate hack. You know, it's mm -hmm. my most recent example. I needed, I had a problem I was trying to solve in marketing. I am not a marketer. I wanted to talk to marketers who knew their stuff. I worked my network and within three days, I had had five different CMO conversations with incredible marketing leaders who all had great shortcuts that like, I just didn't know. They gave me a whole frame for how to think about the problems I was trying to solve. And it rapidly accelerated the work I was doing. And people are very generous in that way. And as long as you're judicious, judici judicious and thoughtful about what you're trying to ask, people will help. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's always amazing to me how giving people people are, especially when you're asking them about their passion. People want to share the thing that they are the best at. And you can kind of flip that advice on its head too. You know, when you're looking to go network, I've found it very important to be known as, you know, the guy or the girl who knows X really well, you know, and then when you have gaps, let's say in marketing, you go find the marketing person and then they come to you for, you know, community or revenue or whatever it may be, um, can be helpful. So people know, you know, what to come to you for. It's almost like branding yourself a little bit of what you're the best at. Um, Absolutely. It's also that abundance mindset of it, it. There's no value in keeping these things, you know, well, a secret. The value is in sharing them with other people and thinking much more broadly about how you can help a wider network of people to rise up and succeed and do more, do better in their own businesses. So the Mm -hmm. more you openly share that stuff, the more it all comes back around. Agreed. Agreed. Part of the reason we we do this podcast and the newsletters and the media elements, um, it's about, you know, giving back and we get, you know, just as much from it, uh, which is amazing. Um, all right. I wanted to transition. This is one of my favorite parts of the podcast. Uh, so our listeners can actually send in questions. Um, you can send them to questions at gtmfund.com. Uh, this was an interesting one, not completely relevant to the conversation we're having, but I know you're going through a lot of this as you're building out a team in EMEA. Um, The question is, as a leader, how do you balance the hiring landscape right now? On one hand, there is a ton of great talent that we would have killed for two years ago. On the other hand, we're being advised to keep our headcount low. It is this interesting dance right now where there's these talent out there that truly were just not available two, three years ago. Um, They were too expensive. You know, they were locked up and now some of them are floating out there, but you still have to balance, you know, burn rate and all these different things and people pushing back on headcount. What, what's your thought there? I'm a big believer that there's no one right answer and that the most important thing you can do when you're faced with this kind of debate or, or decision to make is understand the fundamental math behind your business and how that maps to what you're trying to achieve, and then stay relentlessly true to that vision. So for some businesses, that will be hiring that talent, just opportunistically taking on uh, the best folks that come along. You know, we uh, we are very clear on this at Manta. We are extremely pragmatic about the way we're building the company. And we're clear that we are building a company for the long term. And what that means to us is being relentless about the math that drives our business, about our burn multiple and having a best in class burn multiple and really holding true to it, which is so hard when there are so many great things. There's always going to be a list of 50 things you want to spend money on and hire people for. And, you know, it all makes sense. It's not that it doesn't. On paper, smart people can look at it and say, yeah, that would be great to have. But you got to back it all up to the revenue model and the strategy that you're building your company on. And if it doesn't fit in that frame, you have to ask yourself, will it really help us or will it hurt us in that grand scheme of the the design that we have laid out for the the business? So today at Vanta, that design for us is about having a killer burn multiple and a great frame around the business, around that strategy of the bets we are going to make this year. So where I can bring killer talent in that fits within that strategy, I will do it. 
and I will certainly adjust that strategy, but you can't get lazy and just bring people on because it feels good or because it seems like, oh my gosh, there's this great person available. You got to be a little religious about making sure it fits within your grander vision and not losing sight of what you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think that's fantastic advice. Just that operational rigor, you know, back into the math. Um, I guess this is a good opportunity for uh, a quick plug. Any key uh, roles you're hiring for right now? Yes, we're actually hiring quite a lot of roles. So we have a, a variety of roles open in growth marketing. We need a lot of great growth marketers. We're expanding that team dramatically. We are hiring all sorts of roles here. I'm in Dublin this week with our uh, European team and in Sydney as well for our Asia Pacific team, um, sellers, CSMs, leaders, um, all, all sorts of go-to-market roles there. And in, in the States, I'm actually hiring a head of RevOps right now. So that's one of my key open roles in the organization. And we're also hiring a head of strategy and analytics, and we're going to be standing up this really exciting AI-centric team in RevOps. And I suspect the people we bring on there may not be from RevOps. I think that could be a Tiger team that ends up taking on uh, something kind of radically different and new. Uh, but we're hiring all over the company. We're hiring product folks. We're hiring engineers. Um, we're being really thoughtful about those investments, but we've got lots of open opportunities and growth. We're one of the lucky ones this year. We're still growing very, very quickly. And we've got a very thoughtful, pragmatic plan, but lots of seats open. And uh, it's an exciting time to join. Amazing. If you're looking for that new move, find a seat on the rocket ship. Just get on there. Uh, it's it's going to be exciting times. Um, all right. Well, Stevie, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for you know, all your wisdom and, and sharing so openly. I want to wrap it up with two, two final questions and I always keep them the same. Um, and it's always interesting to, to hear the answers. First one is what's one thing that revenue leaders or founders widely believe still that you think is bullshit or just no longer serving us or relevant? I think that there's still a belief that the resume really matters and I just don't buy it. I think there are absolute rock stars out there that look very different than you might expect that might not have the resume that will transform your business. And it is much more about the fundamental characteristics of the person, about the curiosity. And I think that resume is still, we say, oh, we're more open now and you don't have to have the right school, the right logos. But so many people still default to that. And I think it's a huge mistake. It's a hot take. But again, if you listen to a lot of the episodes we've had and great leaders, many come from non-traditional schooling, non-traditional backgrounds, and that can lead to a chip on your shoulder of wanting to prove people when you do get that opportunity, which can accelerate growth. Um, I like that. And so the final question is that sort of flipped on its head, which is, What's one thing, it can be a strategy or a tactic that revenue leaders can implement today uh, that you think will help move the needle? Oh, there's so many. There's the more forward-looking stuff, but then I, I tend to think about the very tactical stuff, which is get closer to your customers. And this is advice I give to all revenue leaders, all sales leaders. My mentor enforced this with me. Whatever time you're spending with customers, make it 20% more. 
get on the phone more with your your uh, sales team, get on the phone with your CSMs, hear firsthand what the customers are saying, and the insights that come out of that engagement will radically change your view of the business. Not enough to look at the data. You can't just go top down. You need to be in the trenches. That's going to radically transform everything about your strategy because it's going to be real and it's going to be based on what is at the heart of what your customers are trying to get out of the engagement with your company. And that's really all that matters. I think that, again, is is great advice. Is there a, a benchmark for... your? You're a CRO. You're, you have a. We just talked through. There's a billion initiatives. You're hiring all these people. Like, how many meetings a week, a day does that look like? Do you, you try and spend with customers? Uh, there's no great benchmark out there that I've ever heard. I, I think everybody views it a little bit differently. I try to get a good blend of these. So, in a given week, my hope is we we've got our core market. I like to talk to at least two or three customers a week at an absolute minimum in our core market and hopefully much more than that. That's kind of a minimum. And then I like to we've got a couple of big bet markets that are a little bit more of a like 5% experiment. I like to have a couple of those conversations a week as well. Um and some cases for us, you know, we've got big bets where actually today I'm acting as the AE on some of those opportunities because they're so outside the span of uh of the core of our pursuits. So, you know, a good blend like that is great. Try to talk to some existing customers within a week as well. The key is getting a good mix, not just of customer types, but also of the reps you're spending time with. What you'll find is your top folks always will involve executives in their calls. And then you'll have a whole cohort of people that won't. So you got to force it. You got to have a little bit of structure behind it and really just make sure that everyone, every leader on your team is actually engaged in the selling as well as just the managing. I feel like that last piece is crucial to, to highlight is when a, a newer rep or a more junior rep sees that you jump on a call with them, you're willing, you want, you actually want to, it just like expands their mind. They start thinking like a quarterback. They'd be like, wow, I can actually use all my leaders. And that really helps them up level. So on multiple fronts, you're, you're gaining a lot by joining those, those calls. Well, Stevie, thank you again. Uh, this was such a fun uh, conversation. I hope you enjoy the rest of your trip in Dublin. Um, and for all our listeners, uh, thank you. Uh, as I always say, listening is one thing. Executing is everything. Go out there, you know, put some context for your business and go make some things happen. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Stevie. See you all next week. 